0: Today we're reading from Amos four one to thirteen. That's the whole chapter, and then Amos five eighteen to twenty four. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, "Bring us some drinks." The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. This time. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin some more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thanks offering. And brag your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and, a, and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, the other had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. "'among with your captured horses. "'I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, "'yet you have not returned to me,' declares the Lord. "'I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. "'You were like a burning stick, snatched from the fire, "'yet you have not returned to me,' declares the Lord. "'Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, "'and because I will do this to you, Israel, "'prepare to meet your God.' He who forms the mountains, who creates the winds, and who, revels in, who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the height of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on a wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness never like a falling stream. I can never... Yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you, Gemma, let's pray. Father in heaven, um, give us humble hearts as we come and listen to you speak to us through the prophet Amos by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word is living and thank you that it still speaks today. And Father, uh, give us a softness of heart to you and a receptivity and eagerness to listen and to amend our lives in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in God's kindness, he's given us different types of literature in the Bible. He's given us narratives which tell us what our spiritual story is. He's given us Psalms, which teach us about faith, Gospels, which teach us about Jesus, the letters to show us how to be Christ's people together. And he's given us the prophets, the prophets to keep us repentant. Amos was a prophet, and the prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, they all get under your skin. They're not the sort of people that you'd willingly invite home to meet your parents, not unless you wanted your parents' lives laid open and subject to blistering critique. Frederick Buchner, Presbyterian minister, once remarked, the prophets were drunk on God. And in the presence of their terrible tipsiness, no one was ever comfortable. With a total lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption wherever they found them. The prophets unsettled the comfortable. They railed against the flab of spiritual arrogance. They railed against full-blown sin and half-baked arrogance. They didn't want friends, they wanted converts they wanted people to swap sides. They wanted people to change their lives. When we come to Amos's opening words of chapter four, we naturally recoil and we ask ourselves, why so harsh against Israel's women? I mean, he calls them cows of Bashan. My Bible has fat cows of Bashan because Bashan was so lush and fertile a place their cows were always fat. So we have this image, very plump Israelite women reclining on their couches, asking their husbands for drinks. Has you done that? No, don't put your hand up. Um, Because since when, we wonder, was asking your husband for a drink such a heinous sin? Well, it isn't, except in Amos's day, it did illustrate a sense of entitlement, which itself illustrated something deeper, a deeper problem. Hear this, you words, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and who crush the needy. So here is a perverse selfishness, so selfish, so blind as to trample on other people without even battling, batting an eyelid just sort of out of this insane sense of entitlement. Israel's rich and powerful women stomping on the poor, just not caring. They were mistresses of social injustice. And so Amos prophesies their downfall, being taken away into exile by hooks, as gruesome as that is. Now just in case we men are sitting here feeling smug and self-righteous because only the women are signaled out, Well, in chapter six, Amos has a pretty big serve at Israel's men. Woe to you who are complacent, who feel secure, you notable men. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on couches. You dine away on choice lamb and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David. You improvise on your musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. You lose the finest lotions, but you do not grieve of the ruin of Joseph. Now, of course, we're not singling out any of our band members, are we? <laughs> um, but these Israelite men, they're complacent. They are secure. They love their meat. They love relaxing. They love their music. They love their looks. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Instead of Israel being a just society, their selfishness has made it unjust. And these harp-strumming, meat-loving, lotion-wearing men couldn't care less. To which God will say, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what he wants. What of us, is there inequality in Australia? You bet there is. To take one example, just in the last 10 years, the real estate market, you may have noticed, has gone berserk. The younger people have missed out. The causes are complex, but one factor has to be this insane obsession by people in my generation and above of adding property to property. Reducing the supply, driving up the price, this is the air we breathe and we have been sucked in. Last I checked, you only need one house. You know, you can only live in one place. So Amos was harsh because they were selfish and they were spiritually shallow as well. That's why there's that sarcastic taunt, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bethel and Gilgal were sites of of, um, Israelite worship. So Amos tells them to go and go through your religious motions, go through that and sin. He's being sarcastic. Why does he say this? Because they're shallow. Burn your leavened bread as a thank offering. Leavened bread was expressly prohibited of being burnt in the Old Testament. But go ahead, burn it, but they'd made up this practice. Go ahead and burn it. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them because this is what you love to do. Their worship was superficial. And again, we need to look at ourselves. How much of us is here just going through the motions? Honestly. Or do we come to worship the Lord? Do we come to listen to him, to place ourselves with humble hearts under his word, to amend our lives, to be open to correction, and to receive his encouragement? Are we here for us, are we here for the Lord? Israel was selfish, superficial, and hardened. So if you've got your Bibles there, verses six to 10, even though they raise questions for us in chapter five, we can hear the Lord's desperation. How does he make a people who are so shallow and so selfish love him? You know, grace hasn't worked. What about discipline? Every parent disciplines their children for their own good, but guess what, no matter what the Lord does or how severe his discipline is, it doesn't work. Verse six, I gave you empty stomachs in every city, yet you haven't returned to me. Verse seven, I also withheld rain from you, yet you haven't returned to me. Verse nine, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, you haven't returned to me. Verse 10 is more extreme. We can sense the Lord's frustration. I sent plagues among you. I killed your young men. Yet you haven't returned to me. Not not that the Lord's discipline was total. There's mercy there. I overthrew some of you. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. But yet you haven't returned to me. Now friends, sometimes we have a view of God which says God is sovereign over the good things that happen but he cannot be sovereign over the bad things because that would make him out to be evil. Well, that's a very narrow view of the God of the Bible. Look, either he is sovereign or he's not. And as difficult as it is, the perspective of the Bible is that God is sovereign over everything that happens, good and bad. And yet here we see that even the bad things that he brings have a purpose to them. They're there to stop us in our tracks. They are there to cause us to humble ourselves. They, They are there that we would come back to him. But Israel didn't. Israel wouldn't. When you think about her features, selfish, uncaring, shallow, hardened, they are all the features of a classic narcissist. Selfish, uncaring, shallow hardened how do you change a narcissist psychologists say that you can't but psychologists are not the lord and so to produce repentance in this very depraved people now the lord ratchets it up even further because the next step beyond famine drought and plague is meeting him When that happens, not even a narcissist can ignore him. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads the heights of the earth, the Lord Almighty is his name. No narcissist can stand up to that. Now today, we ask ourselves, what meaning should we give to natural and man-made disasters that happen? So this week, just this week, we had the headlines, Venice tourist bus plunge leaves 21 dead. 114 missing in flash floods in northeastern India. That was just this week. Well in Jesus' day, the headlines read, Pilot squashes rebel riot in temple. And 18 die in Siloam when Tower Falls. When disasters strike, what conclusions do you come to? Do you decide life is meaningless after all? Do you blame God and judge him as cruel? Do you think of yourself as somehow better than those who suffered? No, Jesus asked, do you think those who died were more guilty than those who escaped? No. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Next example, unless you repent, you too will perish. Disasters, in other words, are meant to wake us up. Their purpose is to have us turn back to God before he calls us to meet him. So in Amos 5, he says, get prepared to meet God. That's what we've got to do. What must we do? Amos five tells us how to prepare ourselves to meet God and there's two things we must do. There's two false trails to avoid. The first thing we must do is seek him. Seek me and live. Do not go to Gilgal, do not go to Bethel, your religious centers. Gilgal will surely go into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek me, he's saying. Don't go through the motions, get on your knees. In the privacy of your own room, get on your knees and seek him. Seek the Lord and live, that's where repentance begins. Now usually we think of repentance, we think it begins with us somehow changing our morals, changing our behavior. That is second, that's the flow out from repentance. But it begins by simply praying and seeking the Lord. Lord, I know you are real. I have been living my life away from you. I I have been foolish. I need to come back. Have mercy on me. I need to change, but mostly what I need in my life is you. I need you to be in charge again. So the first thing we must do is seek the Lord. The second thing is to seek good, not evil, that we may live. One follows the other. And amending our lives, putting our lives back in order is important if we're to come back to him because God values righteousness, he values justice because he values people who are oppressed, he values the poor, he values the vulnerable and therefore he will be against us if we by our actions are against them. Listen to how he puts it, verse seven, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 10, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. Verse 11, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. So, verse 12, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Do you get the point? Justice and righteousness matter to the Lord. And that's why the Lord says in verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. And then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. You know then, reality will match up with (laughs) what you're saying. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. How do you prepare to meet God? Well there's two things we have to do. We have to seek him, and we have to seek good, not evil. He says do these things and you'll live. But there's two false trails to avoid and he points these out because we are good at wandering down them. False confidence and religion. He says avoid false confidence, that sort of swagger which says, you long for the day of the Lord, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. So avoid this false confidence, right? Secondly, avoid religion. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not gonna accept them. Even though you bring choice, fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. You know, it's been said that the worst sort of hypocrisy is evangelical hypocrisy. So the sort of person who says, I am saved by grace so I can continue in my sin doing exactly what I want. That two-faced hypocrisy. You know, it is possible to cling to being saved by grace but not ask the next question, for what purpose? For what purpose are we saved by grace? You, you just have to briefly read any New Testament letter and it will make clear that God saves us so that we can live lives that are pleasing to him. It's saved, God saves us so we won't continue in wickedness, right? Or, put it another way, you accept Christ as Lord so he can be Lord. <laughs> or, put it another way, we enter the kingdom of God by faith so that Christ can be king over us because that's what accepting him as king means. So we began by asking from chapter four, Amos, why so harsh? When we heard his answer, we asked from chapter five, what must we do? But with chapter six comes an even more searching question. Why still so complacent? And then there's this passage about the lounge-loving, lamb-eating, guitar-strumming, lotion-wearing, wine-guzzling, spirit-deadened Israelite men that we mentioned before. Now that I think is the passage that gets closest to a cultural and spiritual critique of Adelaide Christianity. Um, You'll have heard the saying, pride comes before a fall. The corollary of that statement is that after pride comes a fall, and so here. Through Amos, his prophet, the Lord declares, you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, and therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob, I detest his fortresses, I will deliver up the city and everything in it, For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. The point of all this is to say we cannot afford to be complacent by neglecting the need for our lives to be transformed. To value and to live out justice and righteousness. So, To the complacent, the questions come, do horses run on rocky crags? No. They run on grassy plains, don't they? Does one plow the sea with oxen? No. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. So he's saying, you just can't ignore the need for justice and righteousness to be there. These are the two values that weave as a thread through these chapters. And in chapter five, verse 24, the call goes out, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so finally, point four, let justice roll. We have to let it roll. Where does it begin? Well, it begins with each of us seeking God so that we can live as to the question of how can we live? How can God enable us to live? How could God even give us confidence on the day of judgment so that we might look forward to that day? The cross is the answer, isn't it? Paul explains it like this in Romans three. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, notice this, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, why, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What he's saying is that in the time before Jesus, whenever God forgave someone, he did it without really ever punishing those sins as they should be punished. So, his very righteousness demands that one day those sins be punished, and that happened at the cross. God's righteousness requires that those sins not be forgotten, but be dealt with, punished. And every time God forgave someone, he was putting on hold that time when those sins would somehow be dealt with, and that's why Jesus had to die. But then Paul goes on to say, the same applies with us now too. God did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, not just in the past, but at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying that the two things that God values most, righteousness and justice, they are at play in the cross. Because when Amos, when God says in Amos, seek me and live, God's righteousness and justice still demand that the sins committed be punished, and yet he says, guess what, you can live. And the only way that will happen is God himself taking on on himself the punishment in his son at the cross. But that's only the first part. The next part is that when we put our faith in Jesus, God justifies us, he declares us righteous, that's justification, but then Christ's righteousness, which is ours through faith, It begins working itself out in our lives and transforms us. This is sanctification, all right? So if you've been following, you'll see where this leaves us. On an individual and societal level, we need to seek God and live. The two things that make our own lives work and society works, justice and righteousness, are the two things that we lack, but which God has in abundance. And he calls us to come to him, to seek him at the place where justice and righteousness come together, and that's the cross. But then that key enables us, secondly, to be transformed, to seek good, not evil, and live. It's not like we're reforming ourselves. We come to him and let him reform us. This is what we're doing now. We come and let the cross influence everything we do. Now, it's topical, right? It's the moment. So let me just speak about the referendum next Saturday, okay? This is a societal issue before us, and all of us know that the church is not the whole of society, (laughs) but by the same token, The church is part of society, and each person in the church does get to vote on a societal issue. I'm not going to stand here and tell you how to vote, except I'm gonna say that whatever way you do vote, your vote must be guided by what lies behind the cross. That is, in your thinking about it, you need to think about justice, not injustice, and you need to think about righteousness, not evil, because it's impossible to be saved through these at the cross and not for these things to then transform our hearts in the manner of Christ's righteousness and God's justice. Now next week, whatever the outcome to the referendum will be, we need to let ourselves as a body, as a family of Christ's people, In the real way, we deal with vulnerable. In the real way, we deal with indigenous people. We need to let the way in which we relate be guided by justice and righteousness, which means that our community, our church, will be a place that welcomes people, whatever their station is, and particularly the poor. We have to. We just have to. Father in heaven, Um, we place ourselves before you. We confess that we have blind spots and we thank you for Amos's blistering critique. Help us not to be complacent and just to walk away, but help us today with humble hearts to revisit these chapters and to be transformed. Father, we seek you. And we long that your righteousness and justice would work itself out in our lives. And we long that we would live lives pleasing to you as Jesus has died for us too. So please may it be, in Jesus' name, amen.